it's movie time once again and uh, but you missed us uh, and here we are with our greatest and uh, latest movie time we have with us today an amazing uh, attorney right from california gordon firemark hey gordon how you doing i'm terrific thanks hi for having me thank you for having me <laughs> I'm glad over that, my tongue. That's okay. I'm glad that you were able to make it at this late hour. Oh my gosh! I got the kids yeah. to bed, and now here I am. There you go. It's like, yeah, we we shoved the kids all up into their beds and everything. Yeah. And you know, it's like we're here tonight, and we're going to have like a fantastic interviewing evening. Awesome. And also, we have an amazing co-host and broadcaster with us, Kinte. Hey, how you doing? I'm so glad to be here talking once again with Gordon. I got a lot of questions for you, so looking forward to it. Well, hopefully I have the answers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like we have uh, some great questions up on the blocks, and of course, it's like, you know, we don't really schedule a lot of our questions because it's like obviously we would love to have it come forward from everybody and we talk about everything movies entertainment related etc so let's start off with first getting a little bit more about uh, gordon firemark tell us more about you well as you mentioned i'm an entertainment attorney i practice in the los angeles area i have uh, been at it for about 23 years i realized the other day and um my yeah my practice is devoted to live theater and film and television and a little bit of music as it relates to those fields i don't really do record deals but uh, stuff relating to music and you know being an entertainment lawyer it's all about copyrights and contracts and trademarks and uh, rights of privacy and publicity and that kind of stuff and keeps it interesting it's fun fun work and you also have a nice uh, secondary dual uh, role by day, lawyer, by night, podcaster. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I have a couple of different podcasts. Uh, the, the most uh, relevant one is called Entertainment Law Update. It's a monthly uh, roundup of legal and entertainment law news, uh, stories, cases, that kind of stuff. My co-host Tamara Bennett from the Dallas, Texas area and I get together over Skype and, and do a, about an hour-long roundup once a month. And uh, it's like I'm a avid listener on that, and of oh, course nice. I've like recommended you on your uh, on iTunes, and just like mm-hmm. I'm sure that you uh, you're an avid listener of our show as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was just uh, gonna say, let's go on also to the nitty gritty of this all, because okay. it's like uh, it's kind of very interesting that I find out this information every once in a while that California either recently or soon is making a law that lawyers cannot negotiate as agents and managers, as well as managers having no negotiating powers any longer. <laughs> I'll be ha- like. What's going on there? How do you feel about this decision and if it affects like uh, the legal uh, representatives? Are you now starting to hire packaging agents? And What does it do to the legal uh, industry? Well, this actually is not new law. This is uh, something that's uh, got 30, 40 years, uh, 30 years old at least. It's called the Talent Agencies Act. And what it does is it requires that anybody who's acting as an agent, that is someone who procures employment for a client, has to have the talent agent's license. And that's administered through the California Department of Labor. The, it's been sort of in, in, in legal limbo. It's, been, it's been, you know, been a legal football lately because um, it's always applied to managers. Talent managers are, are folks who are not licensed but are uh, you know, involved in the day-to-day operation of their, of their artist clients' businesses and so on. And very often they are called upon to participate in the negotiations of, of uh, 
both employment deals and sales of, of uh, literary property and things like that, very much the same way that lawyers are. Um, now, lawyers, we have a license as well, and we're held to a pretty high standard. We go to a lot of schooling, and, and we uh, um, yeah, are, are taught, we're taught a lot of ethics anyway. And, um, uh, you know, but, but there's no requirement of any kind of education to be a manager. You can just decide one day, I'm going to be a talent manager and hang out a shingle and there you go. So the Talent Agencies Act came about, you know, as a way of sort of protecting artists against these unscrupulous managers who would, you know, take a percentage of their income and, and, um, and, uh, do some or, some or nothing, something or nothing uh, on behalf of the artist, but, you know, be along for the ride for a good long time. So the licensing was designed to protect them. But the fallout of that is that it also captures, catches lawyers in, in the net. And so um, one of the consequences of acting as an agent without the proper license is that your, um, your contract with your client can be deemed void from the inception. And if you've collected you know, fees over, over time for the work you've done, you may have to actually disgorge those fees and pay back the client. What's going on right now is there's a lawsuit involving a lawyer who um, was hired by a, uh, a local news sports guy um, here in L.A. The sportscaster decided he didn't want to have an agent, didn't want to give up a percentage uh, to anybody but this lawyer. And so the lawyer you know, went ahead and negotiated the, uh, the employment deal for this guy. It's on the local NBC affiliate. And uh, you know, it's a many millions of dollars a year kind of a deal. And so the lawyer's percentage fee was, you know, some percentage of that, um, certainly approaching a million dollars or more, uh, over the course of the life of the deal. And suddenly the, uh, the sportscaster said, I don't want to pay. And he threatened and, and ultimately made good on the threat to take it to the labor commissioner and have the, uh, employment contract, excuse me, the agent, the representation contract, the lawyer's fee agreement rendered void and therefore, um, uh, no money, no fees coming to this lawyer who's done all this great work for this guy. So uh, that's currently in the courts now because the mm-hmm. um, both the managers and the lawyers don't don't feel that this is the right outcome. There are some constitutional questions about whether or not um, the labor commissioner has the right to uh, enforce the law. They want to make and enforce this law this way. So a lot of uh, a lot of brouhaha cooking, and we're sort of waiting for answers here in the next few weeks. So not new stuff, but in the news again, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah, and also it takes uh, the negotiating position very, very strangely because then it's like w- what line does it cross one over another? It's like then does the agent have to sit down with the lawyer and like literally every single aspect of the legal document that's going out to a client and uh, back and forth and back and forth have to be passed through the agent yeah. first and then – it becomes then this runaround of okay, um, then I'm paying all. It's kind of taking away one person's negotiating power, and at the same time, as a lawyer, that isn't that what you're paid to do? Is also negotiate? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, so one of the you know the the idea it seems the intention behind the law was that um, as long as there's an agent and a lawyer or manager, the manager or the you know the the lawyer or manager can participate in the negotiations and even even you know drive the negotiations if that's what what makes sense it's the situation where there is no agent so the you know if i'm working in conjunction with an agent it's no problem for me to be involved in the negotiations at all i'm not the one procuring the employment i'm merely serving as part of a team 
Um, but when that agent is not in the picture, then you've got only, un- well, uh, not talent agents man- you know, handling the transaction. And that the labor commissioner has held that lawyers who negotiate talent contracts are, in fact, violating this law. Um, and, you know, notwithstanding the fact that we actually have a, this higher standard that we're held to. And uh, obviously, I think you can tell how I feel about the, <laughs> the law. But, um, you know, as a consequence... Definitely. You know, I mean, and, and the situation in the case I was describing was really there was no procurement going on because the guy came with the deal. He said, "Hey, I've been offered this job. Will you negotiate the contract?" So he wasn't even really procuring the the employment. Um, and uh, so, you know, <laughs> troubling stuff for the lawyers, um, and equally or more so for the for the managers. So, uh, yeah, negotiating is what lawyers do. Uh, at least those of us in the transactional side of the, well, even the litigators, you know, it ultimately turns into a negotiation at settlement time. If you're not allowed to negotiate the contract, what can we do? Uh, advise the clients and let them negotiate them for themselves? I don't think that serves them very well. Well, no, it really doesn't because then it's like kind of, uh, then it's that whole, you know, does the right side know what the left side is doing? Because the right. agent is negotiating, the lawyer is negotiating uh, on behalf of a client. It's like, does the left hand know what the right hand is doing? It's like, how does many miscommunications happen? Yeah. And then is it really a benefit onto the client's side? Yeah. Well, you know, hopefully the, the parties are communicating well. And, and uh, you know, my experience is when working with agents, it actually is a great uh, dynamic to have the agent and the and the lawyer doing a little good cop bad cop or or whatever it takes to really get the best deal out of things and and certainly there are valid concerns when um the less trained the less uh, experienced folks are are managing and handling things on their own but um you know many many people in this industry are are consummate professionals even though they are not licensed as talent agents and that's the problem with this law well it does make absolute sense now, speaking also as from the legal side, what kind of potential clients do uh, do come to you and what would be like the ideal potential client that you'd want to work with? Like at what point do you want to come even into the project? Well, uh, that's several questions. My first thing, my first answer, my ideal client is, is uh, someone, either a business or an individual, artist or business person, you know, producers, writers, directors, actors. Um, uh, and anybody else in, in, in around the entertainment industry who has you know a need for the kinds of services I provide, which is not just negotiating contracts but also structuring business deals, structuring business like corporations and limited liability companies, arranging the financing for a film projects um, or the theater projects that I work on sometimes it 's just advising about the the um, um, management and control of intellectual property, those kinds of things. Anybody who, who has those needs and has you know, enough stuff happening to justify it from an economic standpoint, let's be honest, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's somebody who can pay my fees, <laughs> essentially. Um, uh, I, the stuff I love to do is film projects. I love to do the production legal work. That is the, all of the stuff that happens once the um, once the financing is in place and until the uh, post-production is finished and it's delivered to the distribution. So uh, lots of deals and contracts and, and nitty-gritty, you know, little fires to put out and those kinds of things. That's the, that's the real fun stuff for me. And that's where it's uh, great to come in on that yeah. part of also the green light yeah, uh, I, part I, of the project. My preference is to be involved as early as as is possible given 
the realities of the project. Sometimes that's, you know, the producer coming to me and saying, hey, I want to buy this screenplay. I want to make a movie. Sometimes it's a lot later in the game and uh, then there's a lot of catching up <laughs> to do. Yeah, and there's a lot of negotiation when it comes down to that, especially with rights when you're talking about books and you're mm-hmm. talking about uh, various parts because a lot of things have become <clears throat> adaptations of books. Mm-hmm. We're not going to re- to mention so many of them, but they're, it's like <laughs> they go on and on and on. One um, of the fun things for me is actually when it is, is that very issue, what we call the chain of title. The fact that the material that's being filmed is a screenplay based on something else that might also be based on something else. And I've even seen the chain go three or four levels deep where it was a screenplay based on a novel that was actually an adaptation of a, of a magazine article that was inspired by the author going to a play that turns out to have been based on a real person's story or something like that. Uh, You know, you you saw how far back do you end up having to reach to get all the rights? Let me ask you uh, this question. Um, This is Kente. Uh, do you ever have to do like, do you have to ever do damage control due to maybe a client's previous attorney who may have not done a good job? Do you ever have to come in and kind of have to clean up which you can with somebody else's shoddy work? Has that ever happened? Uh, you know, I hesitate to call other lawyers work shoddy. Um, sometimes, uh, sometimes things get missed. Uh, yeah, the, answer, the short answer to your question is yes. I, I do come in and and fix problems that are created. As often as not, it's not because they had a lawyer who didn't do a good job. Uh, oftentimes, they didn't have a lawyer at all, and now it's late enough in the game that they realize they need someone, and there's some damage that's already been done. Um, and occasionally, there's a lawyer who has mismanaged something or miscalculated in a in a deal, and so we end up having to backpedal or or you know, go back to the drawing board on something. Um, but uh, I haven't encountered too many situations where other lawyers have really botched it. Oh, okay, well that's good because you know, <laughs> you know what it is. It's like when you get a plumber. It's so funny. Mm-hmm. The minute they come and come and look under your, you know, they look at your pipes. They always mm-hmm. want to say the last plumber sucked. So <laughs> I got to give you credit that you didn't, you know, that you well, didn't, you don't do that. The, all the other lawyers do suck, but no, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not that's true. First, that much uh, what they uh, teach you in um, plumbing school is. Always uh, talk about the last plumber and say, I can mm-hmm, do so mm-hmm. much better. But Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, there but is the occasion where I look at something and say, I can't make heads or tails of what they were trying to do here, you know, or something <laughs> like that. But often as not, that's uh, uh, someone was trying to do it themselves and, and messed it up. So. Yeah, do-it-yourself contract. Also, it's like uh, just a slight uh, question on contracts in general. Mm. Um would you say that the general rule of it or it, how does it work in terms of that? It's like a contract is finalized once both parties have agreed or the fact that it's like even if it's an ever-evolving, changing document, it is still until it is absolutely agreed in writing that it's agreed? Well, this is a really tricky thing actually and it's important to remember that a contract can exist the moment parties have agreed on the fundamental material terms. And those material terms may only be three or four key points, the dollars, the, the, the who, what, where, when, and how, and why, you know, um, and not even the why, just the who, what, where, when, and how. And, but there can be an awful lot more to negotiate in the deal um, that matters a lot to people. And sometimes 
those key, you know, those key four or five points aren't the most important things in the deal. So it's important to remember that if you're making, if you, if you shake hands and say, yes, we have a deal, you have a deal, you have a contract. And if you can't come to terms on some of those other issues, it can really lead to some, some sticky problems. So, you know, the best advice is, you know, no deal until the whole deal is done. And everybody should be frequently reminded that, it's a negotiation, not a contract, until the ink is dry on the signatures. Yeah, and until the final deal is put into place. Right. And if any party has said, no, well, I want to renegotiate terms, then it's not really a deal. Well, I mean, renegotiation, it is, it can, yeah, renegotiation can happen if, if the party who's trying to reopen the negotiations has the leverage to make that happen, sure. But, um, you know... Uh, yeah, clo- there shouldn't be a, a, a contract made, and contract being a, the legal term you know, of, a, of a finalized agreement. But fi- what's fi- well, finalized isn't the right word, but a formal agreement. It can be in writing. It doesn't have to be, though. You know, we've, we've got situations and, and cases describing oral contracts being very binding. <laughs> so um, yeah, that, that's the important thing to remember is if the intention is let's finish all of the deal points before we have a deal, then everybody needs to be clear on that subject. Yeah, and then even if anything is in writing, as long as there, it's like unless there has been a great, this is our final deal, 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 mm-hmm. then it's still not a deal. <laughs> right. Right. Okay, and uh, now I know that we spoke a little while back about uh, crowdfunding, and I'm only going to touch on this as a one-time thing because okay. you know that they've been saying at the AFM that now there are fads like that, and it's slowly becoming less acceptable in terms of crowdfunding for investors like people don't want just you know i uh, i spent my ten dollars i have a crappy t-shirt to show yeah. for it or i have a, <clears throat> a really cool dvd to show for it mm-hmm. you know um or thank uh, you know they want to thank you it's like they want a more active role in terms of possibly getting back money as people are becoming more savvy in the return crowdfund- on investment yeah yes a lot of ROI on the, that. So how is that going to change up SEC rules and change up then the whole crowdfunding platform? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? How, how are the rules going to change? And we should have already had answers to this. The SEC was charged. So let me back up. So there are two flavors of crowdfunding. One is the Indiegogo, the Kickstarter, the, the, what you described, the, the, the compensation that the funder gets is a T-shirt or tickets to the show or, or uh, you know, something, uh, some memorabilia or something like that. That is generally considered to be a donation or a gift. And so it doesn't implicate securities laws at all because the, the people who are contributing into the project don't have any expectation, legally speaking, of getting anything back other than the, the T-shirt or, or the name on the poster or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and and I think the the trouble with this model is that I mean well trouble it, it, it's great for generating smallish amounts of funding, and by smallish I mean in the five figure range you know ten thousand twenty thousand thirty thousand. When you start to get to try to fund the whole budget of a of a feature film, you know it's a pretty small feature film uh, in that range. And unless you are Zach Braff and you have a, a you know bazillion Twitter followers who will each contribute 10 bucks to your making of whatever movie it is um, it's going to be very hard to raise a full budget that way it it has been done it can be done but very hard so in i want to say early 2020 actually yeah it's about 3 years ago now the um 
Congress passed and the president signed a law called the Jobs Act, Jumpstart Our Business uh, something or other. And that act included provisions that said we're going to change the securities laws to allow, among other things, for crowdfunding of investments of about a million dollars and a few other restrictions. So the SEC, which is responsible for administering these laws, was charged with coming out with a set of rules that would govern this. And they have dragged their feet <laughs> doing so. And so we still don't have a clear um, hardline definition of what the new rules are going to be. And that obviously makes it hard to use this uh, kind of crowdfunding provision um, just yet. It's, you know, many of the, of, the, of the factors and things to be considered are very clear. And it makes it pretty hard for filmmakers to, um, to use, but yeah, we'll see it happening. It's just a, a ways off. So, the, so the, the answer is we don't really know what the rules are going to be yet. Because well, doesn't it then turn an, a passive investor into an active investor as soon as you're asking an ROI? And then do you have to have a board meeting of 1,000 people? Actually, no. Um, the, the, so like, the does everybody, you know, does the $5 person get a, a vote of uh, what happens with the costume because they get $5 back? <laughs> that is something that needs to be addressed in these crowdfunding scenarios. Now, I think, you know, I mean, the way we would handle it is to treat every dollar as equal, not every person as equal. And so um, uh, five votes for $5 and 50,000 votes for $50,000, you know, um, who's going who's gonna to rule the roost on those situations. But that's why we need SEC rules is to help us figure this stuff out. But the distinction between active investor and passive investor is a different issue. Um, in, active investors are people, you know, co-producers, partners in the production, folks who have a legal right under their deals to influence the direction of the film, the, the direction of the business in question. And they are not securities investors. They're, they're contracted for, um, uh, for their investment in a different way. That active takes it outside of the securities laws. If the investor is passive, that is they don't have a vote in the day-to-day -day operation of things like the crowdfunding folks – Mm -hmm. um, then that makes it a securities transaction. And that's why we have to concern ourselves with, again, if there's an expectation of a return on investment tied to someone else's efforts and labors, that's what makes it a, um, uh, a passive, a, a, a securities transaction. And that's why we have to think about what the SEC is going to do about these situations. Definitely. And it's something, it's something that's going to be coming up in the industry as well as also now that there's new things that are also happening towards copyright as well and uh, where things lie. Because like with such things as new, uh, like new medias such as Machinima, other uh, new platforms, web stations, all Hi of there. This is Monique coming to you live from Hollywood. Where there's uh -oh. international barriers, like uh, now you're not one person, uh, I'm coming to you from one place, somebody else is coming from a different place, or we're all collaborating online together. Where does this whole, uh, like the industry's been broken into co-production areas and also collaborating with various countries, and how does that affect the legal jurisdictions even on contracts, copyrights, things like that? Because it's like everything has been made really in cyberspace. Yeah. Well, the good news is that copyright is is fairly well established across international boundaries. There's, uh, you know, an international treaty called the Berne Convention that that regulates how copyright law will be used across international 
lines. And um, there's 186 countries that are signatory. I think it's 186 signatory to that treaty. So it, you know, it's pretty easy to predict what's going to happen with my project if uh, if it's something's happening with it. If some if it's infringed, for example, in France or or Germany or or you know many many other countries, there are some that aren't signatory, and that's troublesome. Um, but it's not insurmountable. The the question of contracts and international law is an interesting one. Usually the contracts specify which country's laws will apply. And so, again, the whole idea of having a contract is to inject some predictability into outcome uh, if there's a dispute and, and uh, clearly delineate, of course, the expectations for all the parties. And so if we say it's going to be governed under U.S. law or governed under – under Dutch law or whatever, then that's where it's going to be governed. And we're going to look to that law to give us the answers to how this dispute might work out. Um, so does that answer the question? Uh, yes, it does to some degree as okay. well as also because, like I said, for example, projects like machinima projects mm-hmm. where you're all working at it from a virtual world environment. So basically yeah. it's coming in the middle of cyberspace. Uh, that or sure. you're working with a new media aspect, you see, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be um, uh, Podacity, CGI, like uh, Movie Storm, whatever the software is, yeah. you're all coming at it from an international point of view. Is it the country of origin then that becomes the natural where we follow everything? Like if any disputes were to happen, like you created uh, th- uh, this mod, I created this story. Um, we all collaborated together. It got filmed by somebody else in a different country. Mm-hmm. How uh, how does this all work then in that market? I, I think what you're highlighting is actually the the reason why it's important to have good contracts among the people working on a project like that um, so that there is an answer to that question because uh, you, you've correctly pointed out that you know that collaboration can happen in many places at once or no place at once, depending on how you look at it. So, yeah, I think it's important when you start out, when you set out to do these kinds of projects to um, have the conversation about, well, what are we doing and, and who's going to own what and how are we going to make these decisions that are you know joint decisions or, and, and where is the, yeah, the, the property right going to be situated. So, um, yeah, hey, that that highlights the need for good contracts and, and strong uh, uh, protocols. Yeah, and it does definitely also speak to as well, like things like works in public domain has been also like I you we've t- you've talked about it on your podcast as well that there are now works that are in public domain that are, are trying to be reclaimed in various forms. It's like both and and also. This uh, goes across the board, whether it be film, music, theater. Yeah. There are works that are right now that it's like they've been for years in the public do- uh, mm-hmm. domain and suddenly they're asking to be reclaimed or they – when the time that they had negotiated their deal, there was no future mediums whatsoever. And now people are starting to pop up and say, hey, what about me again? Sure, sure. <laughs> Can you speak a little to that? 
Well, I mean, you know, some of the problems that you've described again are a function of of contracts or, or poorly negotiated contracts and things like that. I'm thinking of, for example, the uh, the failure to to address the possibility of new media coming down uh, down the line. There was a famous case involving the singer Peggy Lee, who sang the voice of uh, one of the characters in I think it was The Lady and the Tramp, the Disney animated yes. movie, and her contract didn't provide for. Um, I should say the contract she had with Disney didn't provide for Disney to own the right to distribute the film on home video. It was only for a feature film. And they failed to uh, address the possibility that there might be another way to distribute films later on. So sure enough, when it came out on home video, she sued and won. I, I think she ended up with a settlement, but um, you know, it ended up sort of setting the tone for how contracts are made nowadays dealing with that possibility. Um, because, you know, you're correct. Unless the contract specifies, um, you, you end up with these ambiguities that lead to disputes and disagreements and so on. Um, in the reclaiming of copyright area, I, I'm not that familiar with, with the cases you're referring to unless well, we're, I think we're talking about the Sherlock Holmes stuff, which is actually um, that the Marvin Gaye case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the Marvin Gaye situation isn't a public domain issue yeah. at all. Um, let, let's talk about the Sherlock Holmes yes. for a second. So that, that's a situation where uh, that's a good example, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, well, sure. So the the some of the Sherlock Holmes stories were written long enough ago that they have fallen into the public domain, and so um, uh, you know, under generally accepted principles of law, it's okay to make new works based on those things or to reprint and republish those same stories um, because they're in the public domain. The problem is that some of the stories and material that's in the Sherlock Holmes um, universe came after and is still covered by copyright law. And so when a book author who was creating an anthology and, and sort of a, um, mm-hmm. uh, an update of some, story, some home stories came along and decided to put out his book – um, the estate sued, claiming that it infringed on stuff that was still covered by the, <laughs> the copyright, and they ended up having a dispute. He ended up the, the the author ended up winning. The courts basically said, "Look, the, the material is in the public domain. The characters are in the public domain. To the extent that there's some aspect of that character that was new, yes, maybe that's um, still protected and so on. But uh, this particular author, I think, was pretty careful to avoid that stuff, um, and." You know, so the the Holmes, the, excuse me, the Conan Doyle estate has really been sort of, you know, put in its place on that particular claim. Um, there are a few scenarios where a work that has fallen into the public domain can be recaptured. Um, my understanding of that, and I'm not certainly not an expert on, I haven't done a lot of research. My understanding though is. Uh, when that happens, that works that were created during the window of time when it was in the public domain mm-hmm. will be sort of carved out and permitted to continue. So, um, you know, if, for say, for example, the the country changes the length of the protection for the Sherlock Holmes material, um, you know, so now it's covered for another 20 years, that wouldn't stop the folks that are doing uh, elementary here in, in, I think they have permission, but the, the point yes. is if someone has made a television series based on the Holmes characters, um, those episodes that are made before that new law goes into effect would still be allowed to, to persist. And so um, maybe not as big a problem as we might imagine it to be, 
but um, certainly troublesome to to think that we can't predict with us with true certainty what uh, what happens when we use a piece of public domain work. Certainly, the older the better, but mm-hmm. it's it's the works that are recently in the public domain that I think are the most troubling. And also in terms of clearances as well, mm-hmm. it's like going through clearances. Like for example, if somebody wanted to use Sibelius's Finlandia, mm-hmm. Finlandia, Sibelius had no uh, descendants. It mm-hmm. depends on which symphony production that you'd be looking at but the original Finlandia itself is public domain mm-hmm. yet certain companies have also claimed for Finlandia mm-hmm. well, as well. And, yeah and, and with music in that scenario you do have as you as you identified the the double copyright issue one copyright in the composition that's being used but then also the recording that's being used is a separately copyrighted work and when you have works like that the arranger who did the particular orchestration arrangement for that particular symphony that recorded it on whatever label might also have some claim, if to the extent that those arrangements have some originality to them, uh, there might be some claim there as well that there's a copyright interest covered by that. And as often as not, that person was an employee of a record label so or, or whatever. So that would belong to the record label. Yeah, it's, a, it's an issue. Um, uh, using music in films is always uh, confronting that that challenge. You have to know that everything you're doing is covered by public, covered either by copyright or in the public domain. Um, if you're using a sound recording, it's a safe bet that it's protected under some copyright law. So, uh, no matter whether it's an original or a actual copy itself, so always well, extra clearances. Right, because you know you and I can go out and record our own particular versions of you know ticket to ride or whatever and when we do we own a copyright in the recording it's subject to our obligation to pay some royalties to the owners of the composition to the beatles but uh doesn't stop us from making and owning that recording of the song so when you as a filmmaker take my version of ticket to ride and use it you got to pay the beatles something but you also have to pay me something for using the recording that i made Definitely. Also, in regards to clearances, a lot of people are very, very confused or sketchy in regards to how early in the process do you go ahead and go for your clearances? Because you want your certificate of clearance as soon as possible, obviously, but how soon in the process do you do this? I think the answer to this is it sort of depends. Um, It depends on what you're clearing and what you're using. You, You know, clearance is basically the process of licensing the material that's embodied within the work you're creating. So if you're using music and you know that that music needs to be in the film, then yes, you, you want to clear it as soon as you know that. Otherwise, you may find yourself going and shooting, you know, a, a, let's, let's hope it's only a day of shooting that you lose because you find out you can't use the song. Um, the script itself, though, also goes through clearance processes. Sure. As well, so like from character straight on through to yeah. any similarities as well to other projects and products sure. as well. So how soon in the process would you feel that one goes about doing that? I would say as soon as you possibly can. As soon as you know that there's something – well, as soon as you you have a finished script, I would say it makes sense to start talking about it. Now, as a practical matter, if you're not if you're not – ready to start shooting or close to ready to start shooting, you may not need to do the lengthy legal review, clearance review that that you're referring to. Um, But 
you know, before you certainly, as, the answer is as early as possible. Um, as, as soon as you can afford to is really the, what I mean there. Um, because you're right. I mean, it, it, I mean, anything from the name of a character could be a problem. And there are these research services that will actually go through a script line by line and, and give you a report that says, you know, in scene three, you have a character who's a mailman named Tom Smith and your film is set in Portland, Oregon. And it happens that there's a mailman in Portland, Oregon, whose name is Tom Smith. And your movie's portraying him as a child molester. So he's going to have a problem with it. Um, That's a change the name scenario. Uh, yeah, and they give several suggestions of you could put it as Tim Smith. To, uh, sometimes they do, yeah. sometimes not. Yeah, it sort of depends. And, and you know, the other issue though is if there's a scene in the film where there's a song being sung by the two teenage girls riding in the car and they're singing along with the Taylor Swift tune, you better know before you shoot that scene that it's going to be okay to use that recording and that composition, or else you can make a change and have them sing a different song. So earlier is it, better. And also knowing that it's like a, that the eight bar rule doesn't necessarily always apply. The eight bar rule doesn't even exist. There's no such thing. Ah, interesting. <laughs> if, if the material is discernible as as you know a copy as as the original, um, it, you know it's a safe bet that you're you're going to get at least a, a bit of stink eye over it. Uh, there might be a fair use defense or something like that, but there is no hard and fast um, rule of thumb that you can follow to avoid getting sued or avoid losing the lawsuit. A copyright infringement is, is it a copy? And the way we determine that is, did they have access to the material and how substantially similar is it? So the more access, the less similar it needs to be and vice versa. Oh, very interesting. And also, it's like, uh just to change on a, a little bit, also we'll go back as well a little bit more. But can you also tell me a little bit about your podcast? Oh, sure. Well, I did a little bit already. You know, it's, like I said, it's an, yes. uh, an hour-long monthly roundup of news and and events that have affect the entertainment industry. So we talk about the Marvin Gaye case, for example. We talked about the the um, Sherlock Holmes situation at length last year when it was coming down the courts, uh, uh, down from the courts. And, um, yeah, so it's at entertainmentlawupdate.com. And uh, we're coming up on our next episode in about two weeks, I think. I think we recorded actually on the 18th, so next Wednesday. And, um, um, yeah, it's <laughs> there it is. My, my co-host and I have a, a team of, of uh, volunteer contributors who help us choose the stories and identify the material for the topics. And then we boil it down to, uh, you know, usually eight or nine stories a, a month to... Uh, to cover and uh, try to share the most relevant legal information we can. Now, you know, the one thing about uh, being an attorney and everybody knowing that you're an attorney is I'm sure you get a lot of uh, people want advice, yep. legal advice, free legal advice, which I'm sure you, you, you probably, get what you pay for. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, what is that like? You know, once you, do you ever just say, uh, do you ever say, not say you're an attorney. Like, do you ever say, "Oh, you know, I work at, uh, you know, at the the Gap," <laughs> you know, just uh, just so that you won't get the legal, you know, the legal questions and all that? Or do you, are you pretty upfront about it always? Uh, you know, I'm pretty candid about it most of the time. I mean, there, I, I admit, there are times when I would rather not share the fact that I'm a lawyer. More often than not, it's because I'm feeling like I'm in a situation where 
the person I'm talking to is not going to like me or not going to want to deal with me or going to clam up or, or change the way they operate because they know I'm a lawyer. Um, it doesn't happen very often, you know, um, uh, and I don't, I don't go to any lengths to hide the fact that I'm a lawyer, but yeah, there, there are some of those times. Most often than not, though, it's easy enough for me to deal with that. Oh, you're a lawyer. Can I ask you a question scenario by saying, well, like I did when you brought it up, I said, you know, well, you get what you pay for. Um, <laughs> but often my answer has to be, and this, and this is what most lawyers will do is say, listen, that sounds like a very interesting or challenging situation to really give you a, a meaningful answer. I would have to hit the library and do some research. So if you'd like to call me on Monday at my office, I'd be happy to look into it for you and we can discuss it then. How does that sound? Here's my card. You know, it, it's, it takes it out of the social and into the business realm a little bit. And it doesn't, um, you know, sometimes I've also just said, you know what, this is a party. I'm here to have a good time. This is kind of a work thing. Can we, can we take it up no, you know, next week? And, uh, or can I call you about it next week? You know, sometimes that works, sometimes not. Um, I tend to like to help and, and want to say yes to things. So I end up giving the answer as often as not and from an ethical and, and, uh, you know, potential malpractice end of things. I guess that's a little dangerous, but most of the time the answers are, you know, like I'm doing here, I'm answering off the cuff. If I don't know the answer, I'm going to say so. But uh, most of the time the answers are pretty, pretty clear. Do you, do you ever, do you ever like you know, put on the lawyer cape, like you might over, you know, somebody's talking, they don't know you're a lawyer yeah. and they're talking about something legal. And do you ever say, well, I am a lawyer and da, 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 da you know, like that. Uh, you know, I, I, I have, I know I have in the past. I think that's a, that's sort of a young lawyer insecurity thing that comes into play. If I have something to say and I know an answer to a question, I'll answer it. And if somebody asks, well, how do you know? Um, I'll usually say, well, this is what I do for a living or, or whatever. But, I, you know, I don't, I don't pull out the I'm a lawyer card right off the bat unless it's, you know, unless somebody's saying, hey, does anybody know a good lawyer? <laughs> yeah, <I'm> a lawyer. <laughs> right here. <laughs> right. No, a good one? Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, one thing, though, that is, you know, what's so funny about uh, being a lawyer is there is a perception, uh, unfair perception but the funny thing, the, the the funny thing of it is, when anybody gets in trouble, you know who they got to call, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you know, that kind of sucks though that I don't that lawyers get a bad rap, but when we need them so much, right? Well, you're right. I mean, I agree with you that it sucks, but uh, you know, I think we've also not me personally, but I think a lot of lawyers have um, uh, set us up for that treatment by their aggressiveness, their uh, you know, uh, abrasiveness, if you will. And, and frankly, excuse me, frankly, some of them, um, you know, some of that reputation is deserved. Lawyers are perceived a certain way and, and st those kinds of stereotypes don't come to pass by accident. Um, I don't know that all of them are, <laughs> are bad. I mean, are, are true, but, uh, you know, we are highly paid for what we do because we are highly trained for what we do and the demand is there. The value that we provide is, is important, but, um, you know, people always resent paying a lot for something, you know? So, um, I don't fault people for having those, those notions about lawyers as long as when they need someone, um, you know, they, they get the help that they need and, well, the there lawyer is. is there to definitely protect also your, uh, like a lot of times it's like a, a 
and I will preface that with a, a, a reputable good lawyer is there always to protect their client to make sure that their client is getting the best deal possible. The yes. adage being that, you know, at the end of a negotiation or at the end of any deal, it's like, the person who is paying is going to feel like that they've paid too much and the person who is receiving will feel that they've received too little. But yes. then, yet at the same time, there's a happy medium that has to be. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of different ways to look at things. One is that, you know, in any negotiation, um, I think that everybody should come out of the negotiation feeling like it was a fair deal. It may not yes. be perfect. It may, you know, I may be paying too much, but I'm getting a good bundle of rights or or, or whatever, or long enough time on my option or whatever it is uh, that I, you know, I can sort of swallow hard and accept it. And and you know, that's the sign of a good deal. Some may characterize that as everybody being a little unhappy. I think it should be everybody being pretty happy with the deal in the first place. Yeah, I go so. on the everybody be happy part. Yeah. Because it's like, How yeah. Of you. <laughs> hey, I'm uh, I'm the eternal optimist. I'm always the glass is half full. Great. Or three quarters full. There you go. And especially if uh, we're pouring the drinks. <laughs> and it's like because uh, that uh, that's the whole idea of it. And it's like so that when somebody comes to you, it's like you know you want to tell them like the best ways of like what the challenges are like for example a filmmaker comes to you you want to be able to have the uh, the odds put in uh, basically to you mm -hmm. as well and this is also what i love about the podcast that you do as well like that your views on the entertainment industry it's like it, it also having the various guests having uh, yourself and tamra uh, back and forthing on different uh, aspects as well now what would you also say that uh, your views are of the evolving entertainment industry and when you're talking about your show and those legal cases that come up, like what are you hoping that the audience is going to get from that information? You know, that there's a couple of layers to that. One thing that I hope the audience is going to get is information that they can use to protect themselves or to recognize when it's time to bring a lawyer into the equation. Um, that's for the lay people who are listening to the show. Um, uh, the, the show is actually targeted mostly at other lawyers and, and professionals in the industry. And so what I'm trying for them to, to take away is really just being up to date and current on what's going on with these sort of, you know, oftentimes peculiar case law issues and things. Um, and, uh, yeah, ultimately what I'm hoping people will take away from it and the reason that I do a podcast like this is I hope they take away that I'm – a knowledgeable expert guy in this field and, and that when it's time to make a referral or hire a lawyer, uh, they'll know how to find me and remember my name, you know? Definitely, as well as also to uh, to be able to get some of the pitfalls that may happen. It's like yeah. it's also a great learning tool for understanding pitfalls that may happen, mm -hmm. things that may come up. It's like uh, where you're going, oh, I didn't even realize this situation it could even happen. Yeah. So yeah. it's like when you're talking to uh, to in, I will call it either new or experienced filmmakers as well as also uh -huh. various people in the industry. What are some of the challenges that you would say that you would give them uh, that's important for them to know of the pitfalls and like what challenges that they'll face when monetizing their systems out for projects, etc. Uh, wow. <laughs> 
a broad question. You know, I, I think the biggest pitfall that anybody faces in anything really, but particularly in, in the entertainment industry, is thinking they know more than they know, or to put it another way, not knowing what they don't know. And that's the most dangerous scenario, not knowing uh, that something is a problem and then encountering it or, or not addressing it until it's too late to address. Um, so that, that's the big pitfall. Uh, not having contracts in the first place, I would say, is the biggest mistake that uh, folks in entertainment make. The operating on a handshake, the you know, it's a collaboration, we're having a great time, of course nobody's out to screw me, is the best way to get screwed. <laughs> so, Sadly, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, it, who was it? Uh, one of our presidents used the expression, trust but verify. And I would say, uh, you know, trust but document is, is the mm-hmm. corollary to that. Yeah. Or the theatrical one, if it's not on the page, it's not on the stage. Yeah, well, good point. Good point. Yeah, it's like in the so yeah, it's like a, some of the challenges would be uh, facing it. It's like a, where yeah. would you say that that would lie in there mm-hmm. too? Um, I'm, I'm sorry. What's the question for uh, for uh, whether it be film, theater, music? It's like a, where would you see some of the most challenges that you would be able to say to somebody? You know what? You're really going to be having an uphill battle here or these are going to be your biggest challenges that you're going to be facing you know it, it usually comes down to money and or uh people's feelings about having been treated right so you know if you're collaborating with somebody you know it's all fun and games and to, and, and and exciting until there's money to be made and when that money starts flowing in everybody feels like they got the wrong size piece of the pie and uh, so, you know, getting things in writing, getting the contracts done is, is so hugely important there. Um, uh, you know, the other area is when people's feelings, you know, again, and it's the same issue, really. Um, being treated with respect, being, being uh, credited properly is another big issue in the entertainment field. Um, and again, getting it in writing is the best way to protect your credit, your, your uh, position in things. Um, just you know, just being too trusting is is really a challenging thing. So, um, I, I view my my role um, with the podcasting that I do and with my blog and and other things is really to to teach and inform and educate people so they can see these things coming and avoid the pitfalls by again knowing what they don't know or knowing where the the possible issues can arise. Um, and you know, I think pretty much if there's a dollar sign somewhere, there's there's an issue lurking nearby. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's quite important to know, like also more uh, more about also what you are getting into, and yeah. realizing that you know there are going. Uh, it's like I I love what one person had said in regards to distribution and other aspects. It's like you really have to read what they are saying. It's like read, uh, read, read again, and get it to a lawyer, and have them read, and then yeah, read, read, uh, read again. Not just read it, understand it, and that's sometimes yeah. the harder part. Um, even for the lawyers, you know, sometimes the uh, uh, I joke that you know what the right hand giveth, the left hand taketh away, and you know that's paragraph A and B, or the right and left hands. So uh, you have to read the whole thing and not just the headings, and really make sure that if if there's a money equation being figured out, you have to you know put some imaginary numbers in there and crunch it and make sure it makes sense and make sure it works. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's 
that's the most important thing is yeah, read what you're signing, know what you're signing, understand it. And if you don't understand it, get someone on your team who will and who can explain it and make sure that it is what you intend. It is the. It is so hard to find yourself at the end of the, uh, there and going like, I don't get it. Where am I supposed to go? What is <laughs> right. the protocol for this? And uh, this is why it's like it's also another great thing to have lawyers in the industry. Now I'm going to ask a question, and please uh, don't take offense to it. I hope that it's like the one that is asked. It's like the things of paid-to-pitch introductions that sometimes yep. lawyers do. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your views on it? And is it actually legal to ask for a monetary compensation for introductions and paying-to-pitch when, when you've hired them also as your uh, – because they know that they are going to be your legal representative to begin with? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, look, you know, I mean – I, I don't personally do well, – I don't think of what I do as paid to pitch, uh, partly because I don't shop material around. I don't, I don't do a lot of that pitching. Um, but, you know, yeah, there are occasions where I am paid for my time spent and my expertise uh, leveraged in making an introduction or making a connection for the client who, you know, then turns that into a deal that we then negotiate and, and – um, you know, lawyers are paid for our time and our expertise. So I think it, it first of all, I think it's legal to answer that question. Um, and I think, I think it ultimately comes down to a question of value. Is what you're paying worth what you're getting from it? If it's somebody who says, give me a list of studios and I will send your script to all of them for $50 each or $100 each, I don't think there's a lot of value in that. Um, mm-hmm. But I think if it's, you know, you've got a script that I think would be, that, that we all think would be great if it was in so-and-so's hands, and I just happen to know the people over there that I can reach out to and get it into those hands, and yeah, it's going to take me about a half an hour of talking and cajoling and making that happen, and my fee is going to be charged at my hourly rate. I don't think there's anything unreasonable or, or wrong with that as long as, you know, my hourly rate isn't $12,000 an hour. <laughs> Yeah. Definitely, because uh, there are certain companies that have been known to, or certain uh, legal entities that will remain nameless that have said, you know, um, it will be $2,500 to listen to your pitch, but you don't know who's on the other side. That's Okay, that's a different scenario entirely. Yeah. And, and I Which is a different thing as yeah. opposed to an introduction where it's yeah. a legal entity where you're talking about somebody who you know, you mm-hmm. vetted the person, they vetted yeah. the person, this is a client and you're, you are actually spending right. legwork. There are film festivals, pitch fests, the kinds of things you describe. I think that Correct. they are, uh, I think that they prey on, on unsuspecting, uh, without being pejorative. I'm just going to use the phrase wannabes, people who want to be, uh, writers or, or directors or creatives in whatever regard, and they've got a little bit of material and no connections, no way in. Um, yeah, I, I think that's predatory. I don't, I don't care for that kind of an approach at all. Um, that said, it's not at all unusual to see films paying an entry fee to get it in consideration to join, you know, become part of a festival or a, a competition. And again, it comes down to a question of value. Is this a competition worth being in? And is the fee appropriate for what you're getting in exchange, which is, you know, a just consideration of whether your film makes the cut. Um, so a few hundred dollars, yes, a few thousand dollars, probably not. 
and transparency of also who it's being given yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of times it's like also with certain companies in terms of the pitch part, mm-hmm. it's like you're not certain of who's on the other side. If any. And <laughs> yes. And it's like it's often been mm-hmm. joked about that it's like I can get my you can get a secretary in a you know a nice business suit mm-hmm. and you know your mother-in-law sitting over there and you wouldn't even know. Right. Because they're pitching to a room. Mm-hmm. That's true. And so, therefore, it's important to know who you uh, who you are dealing with. And this is a, another reason why it's a great thing to have a, a lawyer about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think as a general rule, it's not a good idea to pay money out without knowing exactly what you're getting in exchange. Now, with lawyers, that exactly what you're getting in exchange is – the the amorphous description called representation. And I always try to be more specific than that in describing what it is I'm going to do as my service in exchange for my fee, whether that is I will negotiate and draft your contracts for you or I will pick up the phone and, and make the, you know, the introduction if that's really what somebody wants to pay me for. Uh, you know, uh, and the to whom and the when and all of those things need to be pretty specific before – it makes sense to write that check. Um, and again, if you're getting into one of these pitch fest things, yeah, you want to know who's going to be in that room and is it really worth the money that you're being asked to spend. 2500 strikes me as a lot of money to pitch a script to a room. Absolutely, as well as also in terms of other introductions, it, yeah. it, it all depends. Sure. And one of the questions that I also uh, had in regards to it, it's like you have attended the AFM in the past, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you think are uh, some of the benefits of that from well, your point of view? I, I think if you're a newcomer to the industry, uh, the AFM or any of the, of the film markets that are held around the world is a great way to sort of learn a little bit more about the back end, the, not the back end, the distribution end of the business and how the films really get from from you know something sitting in a can on a shelf somewhere to audiences seeing it and money flowing in the direction that it should. And uh, so attending the markets and especially attending the seminars and, and the, the breakout sessions that they have at the markets can be really valuable in, in uh, just as a learning experience. Then, you know, as, if you have a film or films in, in, you know, ready to go to be distributed, of course, then it's where you go to sell them. The real key is how you use the market. It's not that just attending, but, having the appointments in advance so you know that you're going to meet with the, the representatives at these distribution companies or these uh, uh, sales agencies and so on so that they're and they're actually going to look at your material and then you're going to talk to them and hopefully make a deal with them. Um, just being there and wandering the halls probably doesn't get you very far um, other than the networking value of just meeting people and getting to know one another and, and familiarity of face and name and, and that, which isn't isn't uh, insignificant but um I, I think you know again like anything in life um what you make of it is what it becomes you, you have to put energy into it not just show up for for the festival or the market have uh, have you actually had a chance to actually look at the panels and stuff and it's evolving over the years as well <clears throat> sure yeah i mean you know, there's always something good. You know, anytime you go to a panel 
a presentation or a panel educational program or something like that. My philosophy is, you know, you, you pay this, you pay for this thing and you go and you attend and you learn something. You may spend an hour and learn one minute's worth of a tidbit, but if that tidbit makes the difference between getting your next film financed and not, or getting your last film distributed and not, well, then that's a huge value, isn't it? It's well worth Absolutely. it. Um, so, you know, and each time you attend, you take away something new, you know, so, so it's how you accumulate knowledge and experience. And more recent and more current information. Yeah, absolutely. Staying up on what's going on is, is very important. Absolutely. And what are some of the other places that you would say, uh, well, other than your amazing podcast as well, that you would also say that uh, would give some great information for updates as well as the uh, AFM? Because every once in a while you do get some, uh, it's like we met through LinkedIn as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I think social media is, is very valuable if you use it right. LinkedIn is a great tool because it does let you, you know, sort of identify people in the jobs that you're, you know, you want to connect with um, or at the companies that you want to connect with. But, you know, I think the first thing, anybody who wants to break into entertainment or, or make it in entertainment needs to be following the trades. The Hollywood Reporter, Daily Variety, uh, this is for the film side of things. Uh, Deadline Hollywood is another great source of, of uh, valuable information. Um, if you're in the music industry, you want to read Billboard, you want to stay up on, on uh, what's going on there. But also the peripheral stuff. So if you're, if you're in the television business, reading Ad Week and knowing what the advertising community is thinking about stuff. Um, all those trade publications and, and now it's a lot of it is online and you can subscribe to web feeds and things like that that will help, um, help you stay up on top of things. That's really key. It, it, the moment you stop learning is the moment you start sliding backwards, I think, in, the, in any industry, but in this one particularly. Things are changing so fast. Technology is changing so fast. The way we distribute content, if you look at where it was 10 years ago and where it is today, it's, you know, a night and day. And, and we're just on the cusp of, I think, some very, very big changes in how content is distributed. We're starting to see Netflix and Amazon and, and other online companies really in the business of producing and, and distributing content, you know, first round content. That's huge. I mean, you know, who would have thought 10 years ago that we would watch a TV series on our tablet, you know, or on our Kindle or something like, well, who knew about Kindles 10 years ago? But the, you know, the point is uh, Bosch is this amazing fun television series that's being produced specifically for Amazon to deliver. It's a great show. Go ahead. No, I was just saying it's a great show. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's a handful of them on Netflix now and, you know, there's going to be more and YouTube is going to be bringing us a lot of new original content as well, long form content in in particular. And I I think, you know, we're, we are blazing new trails, breaking new ground every day now. And, um, uh, the real trick is going to be figuring out how to, how anybody's going to make some money from it. Um, the, the sad fact for the film industry now is that we're getting squeezed. Um, it still costs a lot to make this stuff, but we're getting paid less and less for it on the, on the sales end of it. So finding ways to cut corners, finding ways, not cut corners, finding ways to cut expenses and to, um, um, maximize the efficiencies in what we're doing, uh, is important. Now, now, um, what gets you excited or if anything, what gets you excited about your job? Um, is there, is there something specific that you just can't wait to get into or is it just pretty much, you know, like, you know, just go to work, handle the business and go home. But I mean, do you get excited 
when you you know when you work? You know, there are good days and bad days for excitement. Um, I, I always enjoy working with a new client, someone who you know who has something new or interesting on their plate. Um, every deal is new in its own way, and and um, uh, yeah, you know. But what really I get a, my most charge out of, excuse me, <coughs> is helping people, helping people to realize their dreams, whatever those dreams may be. If it's in the entertainment industry, if it's something that I can provide a service that moves it along to the next level for them, that's what's valuable to me. That's what's exciting, and and I love um, being able to be a part of of making dreams come true for people. <laughs> it's when I heard myself say it, I, I sort of wanted to, <laughs> to uh, choke on it a little bit. But it really is—it really is how I feel. I, I think that um, we all have the things that we just, you know, hope for in life. And um, when people have the the sticktuitiveness enough to get far enough to where they're calling me and making it happen for themselves, um, being able to help them make it happen is is the the greatest thrill. Oh, absolutely. And it's like also seeing it. It's like, is there projects that you sat there and, and it's like, we'll go on also both the positive and yep. negative of this. It's like, mm-hmm. is there asp- uh, is there a project that you sat there and said, oh my God, this was an amazing experience to work on. And the one that you were like shaking your head and going, oh my God, this thing actually got made. And please, it's like, I, I came through it with like, just barely not wanting to choke the person involved. <laughs> There's been a lot of that latter <laughs> situation. You know, I mean, sometimes I've gone into projects where I thought, wow, this is super exciting. It's going to be so much fun. And then it turns into a complete nightmare. Um, uh, as often as not, <laughs> I think that's the case. And then there's the ones where it's, I think it's just going to be mundane and, and ho-hum and it's, you know, phoning it in, not phoning it in, but, you know, just, it, it's, it's easy. We'll just do it. It'll be a quickie and we're done. And those have turned into something really exciting on more than one occasion. Yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun. I can't be specific about particular projects. It wouldn't be fair to clients. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, the stuff that I, I mean, I love working in the film business. I love the independent film area in particular, um, especially the sort of, I don't want to say gorilla, but the, the low budget folks that are really making things happen without resources. As, as hard as that is for me to, you know, because I don't get paid very much, it's exciting to watch and exciting to, to see people really making great work, great artworks um, uh, with, you know, almost nothing to start with. Um, and theater is another area that I just love and that it's my first passion in the entertainment industry. It's what introduced me to entertainment and working with creative people uh, was my work in theater. And so uh, I always love to help folks put on their plays and musicals and um the musical theater area is getting very challenging from a legal standpoint in a lot of ways. So, and it's also becoming quite the huge aspect, especially because even the uh, even the smallest mm-hmm. theater productions are getting just huge financial uh, challenges in terms of backings from patrons and stuff. Because again, just like in any other industry, they're not feeling it's just good enough for me to you know donate to the theater. Yeah. Any longer. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed, actually, just if I may, is that yes. in the in the theater side of the business, the companies, the producers, come at it from from the perspective of, okay, how am I going to get butts in the seats to watch this particular play? And that's something that I think a lot of filmmakers neglect thinking about until it's too late, until the film is in the can. 
And I think that's a colossal mistake. I think that no, not an inch of film should roll until everybody has a clear vision of the plan for how this film is going to make it in front of audiences. And I'm not saying you have to have a distribution deal in place. I'm just saying you have to know what your strategy is going to be to get there. And way too many filmmakers come into my office saying, we're going to make a movie, we're going to raise the money, my aunt and my uncle and their 16 friends are going to put up a half a million dollars, a million dollars, five million dollars, we're going to make this movie, and then we're going to throw it against the wall and hope it sticks. And So they come in with the Mickey Judy syndrome. The Mickey Judy syndrome, yeah, and, and big ideas but not a way to execute on those ideas. And, and so what I want to say to everybody out there who's doing anything in business, but in particular the entertainment business, is you have to know who your customers are and what they want and how you're going to deliver it. You're going to solve a problem for them, which may just be a desire for entertainment or maybe a thirst for knowledge about a particular subject or whatever. You've got to know who they are before you can deliver what they want. Uh, yes. and, and making the film you want to make just because you wrote it and you want to direct it is, is wonderful. But if you're the only person in the world who cares about that subject and that film, that's a problem. Then it becomes a vanity piece, not a actual film. And there's an awful lot of vanity pieces out there that are, you know, that are, get made and never distributed. And so, cautionary tale. <laughs> yes. And it's like, so then what is your view on proof of concept trailers? Well, I mean, at some point... get it from that view? That's a good question. Um, I think it makes some sense sometimes to do that kind of thing. I think, you know, it used to be you'd you'd put a storyboard together or in the animation they'd maybe do some maquettes and and a little stop motion kind of a something or other. Um, Does it make sense to do... I, I don't think it makes sense to devote a lot of resources... Until you know, again, that there's an audience out there that wants this stuff. Um, the proof of concept is, it may help you attract that audience. Um, it may help you attract the crowdfunding that you need because you can put that, that little film up on there and say, this is what we want to make into a real film. Um, and maybe the crowdfunding is a good way to do that reality check, that concept proof. Um, if people are willing to back the thing on, on Kickstarter, then maybe they're actually going to be willing to go see the movie in the theaters. I'll tell you that I recently have been hearing about film projects going on Indiegogo and Kickstarter and essentially using it as a way of pre-selling tickets <laughs> to, the show, to the movie um, yeah. or, or DVDs. You know, So if you can get enough people saying, yes, I want a DVD of this film that you're talking about making to finance the production of the film, now you have that plan I was talking about. It just doesn't happen to be a traditional distribution plan. You're making home video to deliver to a specific audience that have already identified themselves. And what's more, they've paid in advance to receive a copy of a film when it's finished. That's fantastic. And then if you manage to sell it beyond that scope of those people, even better. That's the gravy. That's the profit. So um, I like that business model in, in a peculiar way. Yeah, it's like the new PO, uh, that the POC is actually yep. getting filmmakers also being able to say, okay, where before they could get a visual concept, now they can actually get the whole yep. concept of this is what we are looking <clears throat> to actually film. Sure. Yeah. And 
but mind you, it's like a also using the home video aspect. Mm-hmm. Does that not then take it into like the whole YouTube uh, Vimeo field of also as well, uh, like being able to understand that you have to have the quality there. It can't look like your friendly home video. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I think one of the things that you have to prove in proving a concept is that you can make a film that looks like a film that doesn't look like the home video shot with somebody's iPhone. Yes. <laughs> Although I'm, I'm, my understanding is there have been a couple of pieces now shot with iPhones that have been amazing <laughs> in quality. <laughs> so, um, you know, the point is you've you got to prove that you've got the technical chops as well as the artistic chops um, in that proof of concept, which tends, you know, usually tends to be pretty short. So that's a hard thing to do. It's, you're making a sales video when you make a proof of concept. And um, um, again, you know, knowing who you're selling to and what they want and giving it to them is, is the answer. Absolutely. And understanding that it's like it is a concept. Yeah. It's like an, and, uh, the ever-evolving of it. Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, one of the challenges and the problems with doing proof of concept is that it does set up expectations Um for what the film is going to be and so on. It also gives away the storyline. You know, I'm not sure that I want everybody who comes to, you know, who comes to my crowdfunding site or whatever to know what the film's beginning, middle and end are. Um, yeah. You know, so giving them a sense that, you know, this is a scene from the movie rather than something, you know, more narrative, well, more complete in its arc. Um, I don't know. That, that, that's a creative marketing decision that's a do you (laughs) above my pay grade yeah do you give them a taste or do you give them the whole (laughs) right schmeal and it's like then that becomes a a subjective Mm -hmm. of do you do one or the other but yes it's like yeah also i want to tell so take the time now to thank you very very much also for for doing this you have been absolutely awesome for doing this for us it's fun uh, so tell people how do we get in touch with you? How do uh, how do uh, how do people see you on social media? Okay, so the name is Firemark Gordon Firemark. That's F I R E M A R K. If you go to firemark dot com, that takes you to my law firm website. Uh, the podcast I mentioned earlier is entertainmentlawupdate.com. dot com, and um, uh, on most social media channels, I am G Firemark. But if you search for Gordon Firemark on Google+, that'll take you there to my, my Google Plus page. Um, Facebook, Twitter, all of them, G Firemark. And uh, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from folks if they have questions. I have a YouTube channel where I do a Q&A video almost every week. And um, you can look for me there. And again, it's G Firemark. And uh, if you have questions that I can answer there, send them in to me. Go to firemark.com slash questions and submit them. And that... Uh, I'll try to get you an answer. Yes. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I just want to say uh, thank you. One, thank you as well. This has always been fun. Every time I get to hear you and uh, you know uh, talk and you know pepper you with questions and stuff like that, you're such a great sport, man. Well, thanks. I love the sound of my own voice. That's really what it comes down to. <laughs> And the information is extremely informative and helpful. To well, I hope so. Of course, yeah, I hope so. Thanks. And absolutely, and we will, uh, and we will be back 
next time with movie time with uh, another guest and I hope that everybody in the audience if you have any questions please feel free also to get us on the, the Spreaker IndieRadio.org alright peace